0: Hello, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. My name is Frank Place. I'm the director of the Policies, Institutions, and Markets CGIR research program. I am thrilled to be part of this launch of the book, Advancing Gender Equality Through Agricultural and Environmental Research, Past, Present, and Future. While I have seen bits and pieces of the book for some time, it is great to see the final product. It looks fabulous. Now, let me give uh, thanks to those who made this book happen. First, I would like to acknowledge the excellent gender research within the CGIR, the researchers from across the centers and the CRP, the CGI research programs, and the platforms. Without all that, the idea for this synthesis book would not have come about. Second, uh, thanks go to Rhiannon Pyburn and Anuka van Erdweyk, along with the book committee Agnes Kieson being Marlene Elias and Cheryl Doss for transforming an idea into a plan and seeing that plan to the end. I also thank the authors of the book's chapters that spanned all CG centers and the many reviewers of the chapters, and finally, the IFPRI Communications and Public Affairs Division for all their professional inputs required to make this a high-quality output. On the funding side, in addition to PIM funds, which of course draw upon the funders of the CGIR, we did receive some uh, direct support from the International Development Research Center in Canada for the book, and we thank them for that. I think you will be stimulated by reading this book. The chapters cover the many important research themes within the CGIR that intersect with gender. The introductory chapter adeptly pulls together the higher learnings and evaluates Uh, them in historical and contemporary discourses. I will let the presenters say more, but I will say that this book is particularly timely as its insights are indispensable for the 1CGIR's aim to contribute to ambitious gender equality targets. Now, before I introduce our first speakers, I would like to say a few words about how we're going to organize this. event following uh, a series of presentations and and some discussion comments we're going to open this up to a q a session and we'd love to hear from you uh so during the presentation please uh participate in our our Q&A session by submitting your questions on ifpre.org if you're listening there, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIfPre on Twitter. Uh, When you write your questions, please uh, say who you are if you'd like us to to, to mention that and also to whom you're directing the questions to. Uh, So with that, let me uh, now go to make uh, some introductions of our first speakers. Uh, These two are the co-editors of the book and co-authors of the chapter that both sets the stage for the book and pulls together lessons from the chapters. First is Rhiannon Pyburn. Rhiannon is the Netherlands CGIAR partnership senior expert and senior advisor, gender and agriculture at the Royal Tropical Institute, or as we know them as KIT. She was the coordinator of the gender platform while it was hosted under PIM from 2017 to 2019, and now leads one of PIM's clusters in our gender flagship. And she will present along with Anuka van Erdewijk. Anuka is a senior KIT associate with over 20 years of experience in women's rights and gender equality. She has numerous academic publications and has worked to support gender mainstreaming within various different organizations. So with that, I will hand it over to Rhiannon and Anuka.
1: Great. Thanks very much, Frank, and good day to everybody. Uh, We are really happy to be with you here. Uh, today to present this long-awaited book. It is the collective effort of over 55 gender researchers both from CGIR and CGIR partners and it comes out of a process that began with the seed of an idea in 2018 at the second scientific conference of what was then the collaborative platform for gender research. That was at the Addis Ababa campus of the International Livestock Research Institute. Today my colleague Anuka van Erdewijk and I will be introducing the book as a whole And then we'll turn to three chapter co-authors who will go into more depth on their respective chapters. So we can go to the next slide, please. So the past decade or so has witnessed a growing interest in gender equality and women's empowerment in the agricultural development and natural resource sectors. That's provided a unique opportunity to advance gender equality and to institutionalize gender research within agricultural research for development organizations like those of the CGIAR. This book is a part of that overall momentum and the growing body of evidence and ideas that it's generating. The book concess, cons, uh, consists of 10 chapters, you can see them on the slide. The first chapter provides a background on CGI gender research, an overview of the thematic chapters, as well as some conceptual and institutional reflections and observations on the book as a whole. There are three sets of thematic chapters. Uh, the first set tackles technical research topics that have integrated gender. So breeding, seed systems, and value chains. The second set of chapters uh, are on research themes where gender analysis is well integrated and even pivotal um, sorry pivotal to the topic. Uh, Nutrition sensitive agriculture, natural resource governance, and climate adaptation and mitigation. And then finally, a third set of chapters uh, takes up more strategic gender specific themes like the feminization of agriculture, assessing women's empowerment and gender transformative approaches. On the slide, the darker uh, chapters are the ones that we'll hear more from later in the uh, the presentation and there's one from each of the sets that I mentioned. The book as a whole highlights the history and wealth of gender knowledge that's been generated over time on each theme. And in some cases that goes back as far as about 30 years of research. Uh, Next slide. So what distinguishes this book is that it re-examines past research using an explicit gender equality and women's empowerment lens. It makes a shift away from traditional or typical instrumentalist outlooks that focus on how gender analysis can contribute to agricultural research objectives like improved productivity or tailoring technologies to ensure better uh, user uptake. These contributors for the book, they intentionally flip that question and they ask how does gender, or sorry, how does agricultural and environmental research and development contribute to gender equality and women's empowerment? By reframing the analysis, the book, book puts gender equality and women's empowerment at the center of agricultural development. The nine chapters adapt this flipped question to their own theme and use it as a compass for reassessing the evidence. If you look at the right of the slide, the the uh, visual, the part of the visual in purple, that's the gender, that's the research, and that's really the focus of this book. However, to look at gender research across these nine themes requires also looking at institutional issues within CGIAR centers and programs. The institutions that we are looking at are are things like budgeting, resourcing, gender strategies, uh, leadership, accountability mechanisms, and informal institutions like what's considered good science, norms for good science. uh, on the uh, left side of the slide, you can see our response to overall as a book to the, the guiding question, right? So in thinking about uh, how does agricultural and environmental research and development contribute to gender equality and women's empowerment? The first response is yes, these uh, research and development approaches and interventions, they, do, they can and they do lead to positive empowerment and gender equality outcomes for women. However, they also have negative effects on women's empowerment and they can even exacerbate gender inequalities. What's important and I think quite striking and what came out very strongly in the chapters is that these negative and positive empowerment effects can happen at the same time. And finally, clearly coming out of the chapters, is that positive empowering effects do not happen automatically. We need to be intentional if we're going to progress um, towards more gender equitable outcomes. Anuka, Okay,
2: thanks. Next slide, please. So building on these insights that it doesn't happen automatically, and that this can have contradictory effects, One of the main, let's say, points that we try to make in the book is the importance of being explicit and also comprehensive in the conceptualization of gender equality and women's empowerment. And we make two key points there. One is we need to look beyond the individual. So if we're talking about change, gender equality change, women's empowerment change, we're not just talking about Uh, changes at the individual level or individual self-improvement but we're also talking about changes at the relational and also at the systemic level so relational can be with household members members in the community husbands brothers it's also about men as allies in change um, but also relations for instance with uh, extension officers or um, uh, people like that and when we say changes in the systemic Level, Uh, we look a lot at institutional and structural arrangements, for instance, in seed systems or in natural resource governance systems. Um, But we also talk about um, institutional factors. Uh, and systemic factors uh, like gender social norms. And that's also where we go then to the second point. We don't only need to look at the material, but we also need to look at the informal and the ideational dimensions of equality and empowerment. And we can do that both at the level of systems and of relations. So looking, for instance, at social norms of gender, stereotypes about women and men, about who's the farmer, who who can have a say in something. Um, But the immaterial, so the ideational, the informal, is also very important at the individual level, where we then uh, draw attention to self-confidence and critical consciousness. Um, And this broad, comprehensive conceptualization of gender equality and women's empowerment is needed so that we can also track where shifts are happening across different levels and also across these different dimensions, the material... The immaterial, the formal, and the informal. Then taking that forward also to the next slide, um, we then present um, three sets of uh, questions for our next generation research, design, and analysis. And I'll keep them very brief uh, to also give enough time for the last slide. The next generation research questions first need to focus on questions that move beyond specific settings. So we also want to we also want to deepen insight and knowledge about the transfer <laughs> findings and variability within and between contexts. We also need to address these questions about gender equality and women's empowerment in the context of the dynamics of broader rural transformation processes, which you can see in the visual in the yellow sphere and there we highlight different trends privatization climate change migration conflict and security and how do these come together and interlock uh, with gender equality and women's empowerment change processes and then lastly also going back to the point of being intentional What can we learn and know more about intentional approaches to promote gender equality and women's empowerment? And here we highlight uh, collective action and gender transformative approaches, which will have a little bit more space later in the presentation. Over to you, Rihanna.
1: Great, thank you. Okay, to finish up this part of the presentation, then we wanna focus on some messages. These are coming from discussions with co-authors and reflections on the book chapters, in particular in relation to the institutional and organizational support and change that's required to further advance gender research. So bearing in mind the findings, the main findings of the book that uh, advancement towards gender equality is not automatic. And if we're not intentional, progress will not happen. And secondly, to, uh, to advance towards gender equality, towards more gender equality, better gender equality, uh, gender objectives need to be at the center. So with that in mind, the messages for CGI leadership moving forward are first of all, to better articulate the gender-related objectives, outcomes, and change processes of projects and policies. So as put by Agnes Kusumbing very nicely, gender needs to be a spice that permeates the whole project process or policy, not a topping that could be removed. Secondly, investigating higher level gender research questions that cut across specific domains. So oftentimes research uh, questions focus on a specific uh, area of research or a specific, um, the work of a center or a program or so on. Looking at some of these higher level research questions is important and that's part of what we were trying to do in, in the book. Um, Generously resource strategic gender research. So where gender research is the main ingredient, it needs to be well-funded. Gender research must be well-embedded in the core funding streams moving forward. So a a part of ensuring better articulation of gender-related objectives is uh, is, is through having good consultation with gender scientists in order to thoroughly infuse gender analysis across the the whole one, one CGR portfolio in the case of CGIR. This requires staff, which are permanent strong gender scientists um, with ample resourcing and clear mandates. And the mandates need to include also mentoring for junior scientists, uh, not only on the content, but also on navigating a complex organizational context. Uh, ensuring effective accountability and performance monitoring mechanisms So moving beyond individuals really making uh, systematic or systemic and institutional these uh, um, support towards gender research. Confirming a commitment to gender equality from CGR leadership at all levels and coordination throughout the governance system. And finally, to facilitate internal reflection on norms and practices as to how gender or how research is prioritized, designed and organized in relation to gender knowledge. So it's a really critical moment for for, uh, CGR gender research. There's a new CGR platform in place as of uh, two years ago. The system is moving towards its next iteration as 1CGR. So the time is really ripe to lead by example by walking the talk. Uh, But this requires some steps. And these are some of the messages that we have. The question and the challenge for 1CGR leadership and the research portfolio is whether and how to embrace the golden opportunity that, that this moment offers. So with that, I'd like to uh, introduce the chapter authors who are going to be pr- uh, diving deeply into their own book chapters or as deeply as you can go in, in, in a few minutes uh, to present more um, uh, more about the findings around their particular uh, topics. So to begin with, uh, we'll hear from Vivian Polar. She's the Gender Monitoring and Evaluation Specialist and Gender Research Coordinator at the CGIR research program on roots, tubers, and bananas at the International Potato Center. She is the lead author for the first chapter on gender and breeding. We will then hear from Ileana Monterosso Ibarra. She's a scientist and co-coordinator of gender and social inclusion research at the Center for International Forestry, CIFOR. And she is a co-author for chapter six on um, gender and natural resource governance. And finally, we'll hear from Cynthia McDougall, who was formerly the gender, uh, senior gender scientist at World Fish and is now a senior research fellow at gender environment, on gender environment and development at the Stockholm Environment Institute. Uh, and she is the lead author for chapter 10 on gender transformative approaches and a co-author on the gender and breeding chapter also. So with that, I will uh, turn to Vivian and, and you have the floor.
3: Thank you very much, Rhiannon. Um, it's a pleasure to be uh, here with all of you, sharing the, the screen with all these people and to share also the uh, insights from our book chapter. So the book chapter we um, we prepared is called Examining Choice to Advance Gender Equality in Breeding Research. And it was um, collaboratively prepared, uh, including Rohini Ram Mohan, Cynthia McDougall, Bella Tekin, Annette Abenaki Mulema, Priscilla Marimo, and Yumai Yela. So what we did in this chapter mainly was to flip the question, like uh, Rhiannon mentioned, um, flipping the question to actually, what can breeding research do to help advance gender equality? And this perspective opened a different um, angle to the way we look at things to the way we look at basic and technological research in general. Technology research processes are not neutral, but carry within them the designer bias. And so how do we overcome that designer bias was one of the things that we uh, thought of when preparing this chapter. Next one, please. So it's all about looking at gender equality first and using technological research as a building block. That's how we started looking at empowerment first as a fundamental step towards achieving equality. So um, to achieve empowerment, for it to happen properly, people must have the option to choose. Options must exist truthfully and be there uh, but perceived as existed what does that mean um, it means that you may have two options for example dark bread and white bread but if you have celiac disease none of them is really an option right so taking that into what um, technological research and really research means uh, for women and and other people in the field it means that you may have an amazing variety of of beans, of cassava, maize, et cetera. But if that one doesn't fulfill your needs, it doesn't adapt to the conditions that you work with that are maybe quite different than um, those of the media or the rest of the population, then you're actually giving no real choice. So those options must be relevant. Technological options available for women, as said, are not always in line. So that's one of the basic uh, issues that we looked at when analyzing uh, technological, and in, in this case, more specifically, uh, breeding research. Next one, please. So what we came up in the chapter with the team is that clipping this question takes us to look more in depth into the people that we're working for into who are the individuals that we're designing this technology for who are we breeding for and identifying the customer segments considering gender differences and um, basing our analysis on strong gender research and then once we have identified this customer segments purposefully target customer segments consider gender equality objectives so it's not targeting those that can use your technology, but actually targeting those who most are most needed and uh, can be potentially served by an innovation developed in the breeding um, area. And with that in mind, Knowing the people, knowing what their needs are, you can then build product profiles that build on gender analysis for crop and trade preferences, priorities, and needs. So then you are actually designing a technology to fit and to serve and to address um, a specific target groups of people and their needs. So to achieve this, there, there's a three-step process. One of them very strong, the first and and, uh, the basic, is to have institutional innovations that will allow, that will open the doors for all this um, information and this background on technology design to happen, right? Um, We can have a lot of gender research conducted and gender analysis conducted, but if there's no place to plug this data in, to actually feed into the technological process, Uh, change will not happen. So it has to be purposefully embedded and part of the structure of institutions. The next one is to have the methodological innovations that help us collect the data systematically to address those gaps and to service and to inform the technology development process. And um, ultimately a big uh, existing gap is the generation of gender relevant data. We do not have enough information at the moment. Um, We've tried piloting some some examples. Uh, The team looked at uh, past experiences, and we realized that there are big bags of data gaps that need to be filled in order for us to better inform technology uh, design processes so they can generate uh, truthful and real options uh, for men and women to choose from. Thank you, Rihanna. So it's a pleasure to
4: speak on behalf of my co-authors. I'm going to be talking about Chapter Six: Agenda, Natural Resource, Tanko, Water, Land, and Forest Research. This chapter aims at exploring how has NRM research. Uh, for development contributed to gender eco- equality, which also meant exploring how and why gender came to matter in the management and governance of natural resources. As I mentioned, we focus on three natural resource systems with and distinct characteristics and features, water, land, and forest research. The chapter analyzes the theoretical bodies of work that led to major shifts in policy discourse. I'm going to be referring to three shifts in particular. The first shift which is the shift from policy discourses from management to governance. Uh, this is the result of research around, especially of collective action and management of the commons. Next, please. Um, which improve our recognition of plurality and diversity of rights, norms, and political legal institution arrangements influencing NRM policy and practice, which highlighted that focusing on nature society its interrelations is an outcome of multiple uses, knowledge, and social relations between diverse groups of people, which allow better understanding the underlying exclusionary practices in natural resource governance. Um, This body of work showed that concerns not only around who does what in terms of roles and responsibilities at the household and community level, but equally how gender dynamics are a place of natural resource institutional arrangements and policy directives, as well as natural resource investments and innovations. The second shift is recognizing the recognition of plurality and diversity. The focus on who are the right holders, the scope of rights and the types of responsibilities and benefits one may obtain from resources, uh, which also underline power struggles, conflicts over resources and exclusions from access to and use of natural resources are not essentially about the recognition of rights, but also issues related to the agency and voice um, that also have an impact on this. And lastly, the third shift is the need of focusing of intersectional inequalities, which is strongly inf- strongly influenced by political ecology scholarship that show how environmental changes and challenges are not mere byproducts of biophysical changes to ecosystems, but rather the outcome of economic, political and social interests and mandates. Uh, so in sum, this chapter highlights how it's no longer possible to conceive NRM initiatives without taking into account equality or inclusion. Next please. But also the realization that of NRM landscapes are as multifunctional spaces that cannot be easily be compartmentalized into binary categories, such as public, private, rich, poor, biophysical or social, masculine or feminine. This is aligned with existing international agreements and conventions that draw attention to equality and inclusion and call on nation states to ensure more equal access to natural resources. Some examples included the UN Decade of Ecosystem re- Restoration, the SDGs, and the recent COP26 that showed that since the UN Environmental Summit in 1972, there is progress in articulating the links between who engages benefits or is excluded from processes of natural resource governance and management. So what tasks remain to ensure inclusive natural resource governance? Thinking about forward-looking research agenda, this chapter outlines two emerging questions. First, to what extent are complex and intersectional gender inequalities addressed? Uh, And drawing from emerging bodies highlight the need to better understand why gender power imbalances persist in the economic and policy, politics of NRMs. And for this, we can draw on feminist political ecology approaches, which highlight opportunities for cross-fertilization of thinking between natural resource interventions and feminist analysis. And also the need of research to draw attention to better understand not only these gender inequalities, but also how intersectional vulnerabilities nested in kinship, community, and other social relationships unfold. This is key to addressing inequalities across the scale and systemic barriers to gender inequality. So the the second question, next please, um, around how to address NRM and gender intersecting challenges in the way that leads to to transformative change. Um, This highlights the need to shift the focus from only monitoring the extent to which women benefit from natural resources access to critically analyzing issues of power, politics and difference, including participation and representation in natural resource governance institutions, policies and narratives at scale. So in some also address issues of justice. Also, the research shows that uh, while securing access to rights for women and calling for participation in NRM is important, it does not automatically translate into improved agency and material political and social gains to women, that is to women's empowerment. Um, and acknowledge the need to push to approaches that will tackle root causes of systemic and structural barriers to gender and e- equality. So final reflection is that the, the recognition that natural resource governance is inherently pol- political, gender power and inclusion should be synergistically and systematically incorporated in the design and implementation of natural resource programs, initiatives and reforms. Thank you. Great, thank you so
5: much. Um, and I will pick up from here, I'm Cynthia McDougall and it's an absolute pleasure to be presenting this chapter that investigates structural change. It's chapter 10 entitled Towards Structural Change, Gender Transformative Approaches. And this was created by this extraordinary team of co-authors, uh, Lone Badstu, Annette Mulima, Gundula Fischer, Dina Najar, Rhiannon Pyburn, Marlene Elias Dipajoshi, and Andrea Voss. I'll jump right in with that first question that was raised and thrown to us about what does it mean for us to flip the question in this context. So if we put gender equality and women's empowerment at the heart of this may I have the next slide, please, and I'll jump right into that. Thanks. So if we do this um, for our team, because this chapter is about gender approaches, when we flip the question, it prompted us to ask. So exactly how are current gender approaches doing in agriculture, NRM, and research for development in terms of are they leading to gender equality? And the short answer is they are not doing nearly well enough. And if we break that down into a couple of different lenses, a way to understand this not well enough. Uh, the the unfortunate lack of progress. The first lens is is the trajectory. If we look at the SDGs and the gender index, we know that not even a single country is on track to achieve gender equality by 2030. Uh, Inequalities are particularly pervasive in agriculture-dependent and low-income countries. We know the COVID pandemic has worsened gender gaps, including around uh, gender-based violence, uncare-equal burdens, loss of income and we know and increasingly people recognize that this is because of those pre-existing underlying um, barriers in food systems. Even within this lack of progress we can also see there are stark disparities even amongst women influenced by uh, different identities that intersect with gender and these include but aren't limited to ability ethnicity, class, age, and so forth. And so through the lens of the trajectory, the progress has been hugely sticky and slow and variable. If we apply a lens of gender outcomes, the chapter dug into this question a little bit more, and through the literature that it analyzed, it found four critical limitations that others have started to allude to from the other chapters as well. And these include that common approaches to date have ended up with progress that is limited in scope, only women who are in the project area may benefit, not those beyond. Uh, common current approaches have been limited in sustainability, so empowerment effects may dissipate or, um, or reverse after projects finish. Common approaches may even unintentionally reinforce inequalities such as gender stereotypes. So if you think here in terms of Um, women targeted nutrition programming for example very common approach but it can reinforce that notion that women's work is care work is cooking and then the fourth uh, limit in terms of gender outcomes was that the chapter identified unintended consequences common approaches especially those that target women can lead to increases in um, workloads perverse outcomes such as backlash or even increases in violence. And others have started to hint at those as well, even from from the introductory chapters of the book, we get a sense that these are some of the issues of limitations. And so this chapter looked at, okay, so these shortcomings signal something, they signal the need for a change in approach. And that means shifting away from what Andrea Cornwall calls empowerment light. What I think of as we hear so much in the sector about empowerment and and we see this, this great visibility and yet simultaneously, Simultaneously, the approaches are somewhat watering down the potential for success. And so this sounds bleak, but actually the chapter is quite upbeat because the point is that, um, that there are signs that there is the potential to turn this around and to shift this trajectory. And that is by rethinking the nature of gender approaches or the how of gender approaches. And that's why this chapter zooms in on gender transformative approaches, because they, they address those, fa- those failures of how. And that's by going beyond women to women and men, people of all genders as co-owners, co-beneficiaries, working on addressing those underlying barriers. And let me move now to the last, uh, the second question. May I have the next slide, please? Thank you. And so this jumps us to what are the implications um, that we can see for the uh, for the CGIR and from the chapter, I'll pull out four key implications that emerged for us. One is for CGIR actors and investors to really recognize and get curious about and own those weaknesses today. That's where the strength comes from for learning and moving forward and moving beyond them. The next lesson is to learn from and build from GTA pilots and lessons and the extensive base of theory as Ileana just referred to in her chapter. This GTA has grown from a body of theory. And so the task ahead of the CG is to avoid watering the strategies down or and avoid reinventing the wheel. The third lesson for the CGR is for CGR teams and investors to think about how to do really well designed mixed method studies to address some gaps in this growing area and that includes effective engagement with intersectionality, learning how to scale out transformative approaches beyond communities, how to scale them up into markets and into policy arenas, how to scale in, as was alluded to earlier, the organizations themselves within the CG, how to walk the talk. And the final um, lesson, the final takeaway for the CG is that the chapter challenges the CG to see the value in the feminist foundations of gender research and GTA. It encourages CG research to, to be a little bit bold. And while this may be challenging, this is very likely, this boldness is very likely an essential part of shifting what's been a sticky and slow trajectory and instead advancing gender equality more impactfully. I'll stop here and hand back to you Rihanna with thanks.
0: Okay, I think it's uh, back to me actually. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks to all the speakers, that was great. Um, So before I I introduce our discussants, which is the next segment of the program, let me also remind everyone again to uh, please participate by submitting questions or comments that you have, uh, whether you're participating on ifpre.org or Facebook or LinkedIn, YouTube, or you can also send a question at hashtag ask on Twitter. So please do. because we're gonna come up to this Q&A section very soon. Um, now, um, I'm very pleased to introduce the discussants for today. I've had the extreme fortune to have known Jemima Njuki and Susan Karia since the time of their PhD theses. <laughs> uh, and since then I have seen them progress through quite impressive and impactful careers. So I couldn't be more pleased to have them, both of them as discussants. So let me introduce first Susan. Susan Karia is Senior Gender Officer of Inclusive Rural Transformation and Gender Equality Division of FAO. Prior to that, she worked with Ford Foundation and uh, previous to that with also the CGIR. So she's quite familiar in her various capacities of working in and outside of the CG and uh, with other development partners across the world. So uh, let me please hand it over to Susan for some comments.
6: Thank you very much, Frank. And yes, it's a pleasure to be here today. It's, uh, it, it's always good to see how the CG has advanced over the years. And uh, I should say, when Rhiannon uh, wrote to me and said, Susan, can you please write an endorsement for this book? I did not hesitate, even a minute. And it's such a pleasure to be here at the launch of this book that really is beginning to reframe the global debates influence and influence the future directions of this important agenda. And uh, really the the book offers an opportunity to change the the global debates. And uh, as I said, I'm very excited to see uh, how much the field of gender research in the CGIR has grown over the last few years. And having more than 55 gender researchers involved in the preparation, on itself, that's an impressive achievement. Uh, So I have a quick uh, historical perspective. As Frank said, I did start my career in the CGIAR and I joined CIAT 20 years ago as part of a team of social scientists working with the CGI, with the system-wide program on participatory research and gender analysis led by Jacqueline uh, Ashby. It was innovative. And definitely an idea that was completely foreign, even to see it, that I had experience with participatory research approaches. I was supposed to prepare a paper on experiences with developing agriculture and natural resource management technologies for women what had worked, what had not, what could I recommend. And to give you an idea of how different the CG was then, when I would write to scientists and I would ask them for any evidence from their work. They all told me this is not an important area of our work. One scientist actually told me to contact some of the women scientists. So 20 years later, you can see the the CGIR even has a a platform, the gender platform. So huge changes. Um, I think, so we've come very far away, very far from that time. And I think this book offers a huge opportunity to reframe the global debate. And and it, it really, so when you look at the sofa, the State of the Food and Agriculture Report on Gender Equality that came out in 2010, 2011, it was really good. It put gender on the agenda. It made a business case for the importance of addressing gender in agriculture. What this book is doing is really moving that agenda much more forward. Yeah, I like this flip, the flip question, asking, you know, how what difference does it make? How can agriculture research and natural resource management actually empower rural women? Uh, and this is a really important question. <clears throat> so I think two things need to be in place to make sure that this book is able to influence the future agenda for gender. The first one is it really must be uh, widely disseminated so that it influences practice. We need to get this information redone, simplified, reorganized into guidelines, into capacity materials so that we can influence the national agriculture, research and development institutions. They need to have this information. We need to work hand in hand with them to make sure that they are rethinking their national research agendas as well. And this is not an easy task, I can tell you. Just looking at how the national, the, for example, just looking at the Forum for Agricultural Research in Africa, they still are not thinking in this way. So the, the, it's quite it's going to take a while. And uh, But if we want to move forward, we must bring those with us. We must bring the NARS along with us. The, the second area that's really important is that we really need to make sure that this innovative thinking influences global policy debates and national policy debates. Um, As you know, uh, the national agriculture, uh, national and global policies in agriculture, food security and nutrition do not capture some of this. And the big challenge is the lack of reliable evidence on women's role in agriculture and their contribution. And I think this book, has a chance to actually contribute to that and influence what's going on. So for example, at the moment, uh, the Committee on World Food Security offers a really important uh, avenue to disseminate this information, to make sure that uh, as countries uh, establish their policies, they are actually paying attention and listening to the evidence. Uh, The CFS, as it's called, is the only body within the UN system that is tasked with dealing with food security and nutrition issues. And it is currently developing, uh, preparing the voluntary guidelines on gender equality and women's empowerment in the context of food security and nutrition. The evidence coming from here needs to influence that process so that we we really are laying the ground for, for Ensuring that not only are we saying gender is important, we are saying gender equality and women's empowerment needs to be at the center. Thank you very much. Over to you, Frank.
0: Thank you very much, Susan. Uh, and now uh, let me introduce the second discussant, uh, Jemima Njuki. Jemima is the director of the Africa Division at the International Food Policy Research Institute, and leader of the Gender Equality and Women's Empowerment lever for the UNFSS, the UN Food Systems Summit. She formerly worked with IDRC, um, and, and before that, elsewhere in the CGIAR as well. So uh, over to you, Jemima.
7: So much, uh, Frank, and and so honored really to have been invited to, to be a discussant for for this book. I think I'll I'll start too by congratulating the team of authors. You know, back then in in when we started in the CGIR and. I actually found Susan in SEAT. Susan hired me into into SEAT. And we were just a handful of of people that even really cared enough about gender equality within the the CGIR. So to see this group really coming together and producing such an amazing piece of, of work is really gratifying in a lot of ways. So thank you so, so much, because this book really advances our knowledge, advances the evidence on the table on gender equality and women's empowerment and the intersection with agriculture and natural resources. Um, one of the things that I really liked about this book um, is how you flipped this question to really ask about how agricultural and environmental research and development can contribute to gender equality and women's empowerment. Because it's always, as as Rihanna says, it's always been there the way around, thinking of women's empowerment as a means to an end and not a goal uh, in itself. And this is such a profound change in in how um, the global community will think about, about gender research. But I was also thinking about what implications it actually has, because it's not just a flipping of question, because if you flip this question, it means you are asking, how do we do then How do we then do this? Because it can't be the the usual flow. It can't be business as usual. We can't get to these outcomes through agriculture and natural resource management with business as usual approaches. So it just gets everybody really thinking about if we want these outcomes, if we want gender equality and women's empowerment as outcomes, as impact, as the goal, how do we then do this research? It even gets you to think, who do we then do? a research way. So it also in a lot of ways defines the partnerships that people have to build to get to gender equality and women's empowerment as, as, as a goal. So that for me is really one of the biggest contributions of, of this book. Of course, the book did take me back through memory lane. I did my PhD back in the late 90s when farming systems research, was 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 the rev within the CGIR. So I actually read a lot of the Hira sims Spencer, the Susan Post. That's probably only what was available that was very, very specific to gender and agriculture. So it was really interesting for me to just go through that historical view, you know, PRGA, but to also see some of the inflection points, you know, the points that that really made Um, a lot of changes like having the first CGIR gender gender strategy, for example, and what that actually meant for the whole system. But what was also interesting was to see the evolution of the scope of research, really moving from just thinking about what women's role to thinking about transformative change, change at scale, transformation in relations. And I think that has been a, a really fundamental shift in, in CGIR gender gender research. Um, I also like the way it really combines this integration of gender within, you know topics like breeding, topics like, Um, natural resource management, but also some really strategic topics around the feminization of agriculture and what that means for women's empowerment, you know, interrogating and putting evidence on the table um, for some of those myths that we know, you know, uh, feminization of, 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 of agriculture, does it increase women's decision making within agriculture? Does it just increase their workload? Really put evidence to some of those questions is really, really, uh, really profound. Now, moving forward, I was also really reflecting on this book within in the context of what's happening with the one CGIR, And and one of the things that I really like right now is this uh, placing of gender research as equal to the rest of the research. You know, we have a whole initiative on, 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 on gender and inclusion. We have a gender platform that's at the same level, probably even at a much more magnified level than other, than other, um, than other um, initiatives. But also listening to people who work on foresight and modeling, talking about integrating gender in th- at that global scale, because I think that's also how we're going to get to scale. I'll make two other very quick points. One is um, in terms of messaging, I kept wondering, what is it that we can learn from other, um, from other sectors? At the launch of our Global Food 5050 50 report earlier this year, one of the people from health said, in the 90s, in the health sector, all they were talking about was, was women and children and maternal health, not gender. And they learned gender from the agriculture sector. And now I think we can learn so much more from the health sector, especially in terms of even how to take transformative approaches to scale, Um, using behavior change communication to really change um, norms and to change belief belief systems. The second point I want to make in closing is how we create a balance more and more I know we need gender everywhere, but how do we create a balance between this mainstreaming of gender and really asking the hard questions in agriculture and natural resource management research, but not forgetting to place enough emphasis on the strategic gender research that actually allows us to tell how does empowerment really happen? How does change happen? How do we get to an inflection point on gender norms so that we can get to large scale shifts in perceptions and, and norms? So, to make sure we are also placing enough emphasis on those kinds of questions. Thanks a lot. And back to you, Frank.
0: Thank you, Jemima. And uh, thanks again, Susan, as well. Uh, so, yeah, yes, we'll go into the QA. I'm going to start up with the, there's a, qu- a couple of questions that are going to, we'll we I will ask about you know how 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 to pull move forward on all of these but I want to ask uh Uh, one question about, you know, related to this uh, flipping the question because everybody's kind of referred to that. So, but uh, given that maybe we we hadn't flipped that question earlier, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So, a lot of the research that you're looking at hadn't flipped that question. So, how difficult was it in practice actually to put together the chapter and analyzing papers that maybe weren't oriented to your question as much as as it was? So, uh, maybe I'll just ask uh, if, uh, uh, I don't know if Anybody wants to kind of just volunteer to uh, to take that on? Yeah, Frank,
3: yeah. maybe I'll I'll pick oh, that up. Okay. And yeah. uh, yes, thank you. I think that's a very good question, actually, on on how difficult it was to flip the question. And it was a huge challenge because, like Jemima described, and and her. Um, in in her discussion, uh, at the very beginning, none of these issues were really taken into account enough. And many of the papers were providing uh, small bits of evidence. So that actually helped us uh, to build the case uh, towards flipping the question, right? So this is what happens when you don't flip the question, you end up with this uh, big gaps and flipping the question opens up and completely changes uh, the color and the way that you you do research and that you um, propose new structures. And actually in the breeding chapter, uh, we came up with uh, an, a new impact pathway in a theory of change. You know, the, So the existing evidence that hadn't been thought of uh, in terms of uh, flipping the question, helped us put together and build something towards a new theory of change that could actually address uh, gender at the very beginning of decision-making for breeding over
0: great thanks um i so that um there was a question that came in about how to access the book and so let me just mention that there on the on the registration page and the the event page that all of you must have had access to there is a link to both uh synopsis a short synopsis of the book and the full book online so you should be able to access there if you still have uh difficulties accessing it, accessing it you feel free to reach out to to uh, myself uh, frank place or uh, others at if and we can help you on that one, there was another question about um, uh, that came in from. Uh, let me get back here, hey, uh, Manjit Singh, and he was wondering about how much the book focuses on, uh, you know, is pitched at a global level or really drills down and looks at local issues. Because uh, uh, he notes that there might be many disparities uh, across different locations on on the challenges and and what potential solutions are. So, uh, so I didn't know if anybody wants to just maybe make a brief comment about that. Perhaps Rhiannon or, or Anuka can give an o- overview of that one.
1: So I can take a start, and then if Anuka wants to jump in, that's great. Um, so I, the research that the, the mandate that the, the the author teams were given was to uh, to start by looking at CGIR gender research that had been done on the particular theme for as long as that theme had been around, um, and then and then go more broadly. Um, so the actual the, the 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 basis on which the the chapters um, are built. Uh, is on a lot of different pieces of research that are coming from all kinds of different levels. So I think that includes uh, local level research, national level research, as well as more global research. Um, And I think you're absolutely right. Of course, there are um, differences across locations, context remains really critical in in gender research. Uh, But these chapters, I think they they were starting from, from that basis and then building up from there to try and draw some broader conclusions. Uh, Nuka, do you want to add there or anyone else? Um, yeah, maybe
2: just briefly also in the introductory chapter, we um, map out a bit for each of the chapters where the literature that they have collected and also have also reviewed comes from. So, also gives um, an indication of which, let's say, geographies are more or less covered and also what time periods. Um, are more or less present in the different chapters. And maybe then to also come back to the first question of how do you flip the question if the liter- literature is not flipped? So that's actually a lot of work. And it's uh, indeed, as uh, Vivian was saying, it's a really good question. And, it, and I think the, the book and the chapter also not only presents uh, the insights that we got from flipping the question, but it also shows because each chapter has a little bit of different write-up, a little bit a different structure. It's also actually a path of, of doing the flipping, right? So in each theme, so seed sector and development or breeding or feminization of agriculture or NRM, they all have their own uh, research fields with their own discussions, and their own types of methodologies, and their own types of research, and then uh, what the teams were doing, because they were larger teams, as you could also see, um, let's say the authors were often coming from different institutions and centers, so it is the collaboration, the rethinking, and the sort of rereading what is already there, and then trying to make sense of that, so there was a lot of co-creation, rereading, reviewing, revising, and then slowly finding a path in the existing literature to try to find an answer to that flipped question. And I think um, in the end, very energizing and also um, inviting to keep uh, continuing on that path.
0: Great, thanks. Uh, there was a a question that came there's a couple of questions actually around statistics I think that uh, actually first of all let, let me recognize that there are a couple of questions came in to about how can we learn more about gender and nutrition on the one hand and uh, gender and climate. Change adaptation, climate, climate change, and I. So again, uh, there are chapters on that in the book, so we won't have time to go into that today. But um, please just do uh, download a copy of the book, and you'll see chapters on those. But I, I, in terms of statistics and, da- and data, so gender equality, you know, uh, is a globally agreed upon goal. Yet our data systems are really not sufficient to track progress in key dimensions of equality. So, what are some of the most pressing data gaps? That the CGIAR and international partners, and here we can look at FAO as well. Uh, and this uh, should, who, uh, you know, what should they be prioritizing so that um, we we can measure and our progress towards towards that? I
6: can, I can say something about the kind of uh, data issues that we are concerned with as uh, as FAO. Um, as FAO, uh, one of the areas uh, we are very concerned with. Uh, getting data on the sdgs and uh, for example one of the sdg targets uh, 5a it's on um, it has two very specific indicators on women's land rights and it's looking at the statistics but also looking at the legal uh legal processes the the legal frameworks um and and we're just now starting to support countries to report on these indicators. We, for example, with the legal framework, we probably only have evidence for about 30, 36 countries right now. And we have to work with countries to build their capacities to collect this evidence but, and also use that capacity development to help them, you know, reform their policies as well. In terms of the statistics, we are actually right now. Uh, have a new initiative that's collecting that data because we do not have sex disaggregated data, especially on women's land rights. And uh, so we have an initiative called uh, the 50 by 2030, which is working with 50 countries to collect sex disaggregated data and analyze it to get that information. So this is a huge gap. Thank you.
4: Frank, if I can um, add a bit on that, uh, you know, like at least uh, I think from from the discussion on on, on NRM, which included land issues, as Susan was mentioning, it's not only about the data gaps, it's also about, you know, what, what are the approaches, what are we measuring? Right, um, so, for, so for instance, in, in, in going back to the discussion of this, the chapter on NRM, like we focus on, on you know, like a, what we saw in terms of data, there was a lot of focus on number of women, number of women for benefit, number of women who are members of irrigation groups, of uh, forest user groups, but then you know the extent to which we can translate those numbers into actual recognition of rights into actual forms of representation that derive benefits there was less information on this, so I would say the focus should not be only on data, but of, you know, like going back to which questions are we trying to understand? What type of approaches and measurements are we proposing uh, to to highlight, you know, like, and there are several coming across from the chapters in the book Uh, from our side. I think there is still, a lot of uh, further understanding, even in areas, as Susan was mentioned, that we think that there has been progress. For instance, highlighting the example of land rights, there's still, whenever we go at different scales in countries, uh, you know, like at, at the national level, at a specific landscapes, foreign landscapes, there's difference across. So I think that context matters, and and we need to to address this issue of data in in the in relation to that particular context and problem we want to address. Thank you.
5: Fred, can I give yep. one example from, as sure. well from um, just picking up there's a, a really nice initiative uh, collaboration of FAO and Duke University and World Fish looking across a multitude of countries at, um, and one aspect of it was trying to look into the data systems and to do a dedicated roundup of um, what, could, what could be said about gender within small scale fisheries and the overwhelming um, finding having I think there was a, a set of 26 experts associated with the data sets in all these different countries was that the, the gaps were so big it was hard to say very much very reliably um, so, so agreed that the, the gaps were huge but I think um, complementing what Ileana and others have said it's it's a, quite a nuanced question and it, it spans yes capacity to gather capacity to measure Um, There's some questions about what are you measuring and why and what are the sort of underlying assumptions that trigger what and who gets measured. And so, for example, in fisheries, um, offshore fishing gets measured because that's considered fishing and people who harvest fish get measured in fisheries statistics. But people who glean, who tend to be women, not men, don't get counted as part of the sector and people who work along value chains as opposed to harvest don't get counted. So it, as, well as, um, as well as these other aspects, there's sort of huge um, parts of food systems and people in those critical aspects that are, that are getting overlooked because of the, the framing of, of what matters. And between that and, um, and quality issues, I think we're, we're at a moment in time where we're shifting towards a highly digital age, and methodologies need to keep up really fast because stats are gonna to move to a whole different way of being gathered. And we didn't we didn't really land quality in the original systems. So we're gonna to have to work twice as hard to get quality right as we move to highly digital systems and, and to big data and, and how do you use big data without bias?
0: Super, great. Thanks, Cynthia. Can I, um, maybe I'll ask another, this question came in from Martin Van Ginkle. He, uh, he, he's noted that um, the book uh, seems to be written mostly by women authors. He was uh, wondering how committed are the men in the CGIR to the cause of gender equality and inclusion? So, you know, we've talked about uh, some of the gender transformative approaches, including both men and women, for example, as a, as a principle. So how, uh, what do you, what's, your state of observation of where we are in the CGIR itself to to advance gender research for gender equality. <laughs> Anybody want to pick that one up?
1: Well, I I, I think people who are actually based at CGIR can probably answer uh, best <laughs> on that. But I will say that we do we did also have uh, some male uh, co-authors on the on the chapters, and there certainly have been. Uh, champions, men champions of gender research, um, uh, well, from way back in the, in the 1980s. So there are definitely people, men, who are working for this within the CGIR also. But in the actual state of things now, maybe somebody who's still with the CGIR can, uh, can jump in there. <laughs> Yeah,
3: so maybe I'll jump in, um, Rihanna, just building on what you said. We do have uh, some uh, men as co-authors in several of the chapters, Uh, but I think also one important thing that we're uh, strongly looking at is um, having men and women researchers uh, so not only looking at uh, how, how we do research with farmers considering gender, but also who are the designers in terms of having uh, more diversity in, in the researchers. And so there's a gender diversity and inclusion um division or office, I don't know, uh, Frank, you can help me with the exact name, uh, operating within the CG that is looking internally in-house. So much like the flipping, the question that we did is not only looking outward at gender, but also looking inward at gender, over.
4: Frank, if I could add just a a little note there. Um, I think it's also an issue as I think several colleagues also mentioned of capacities, right? I, and this is not a CR, not only about a CR issue, I think um, Susan mentioned, you know, what about, you know, like uh, natural resources government agencies, you know, like, to what extent do we have men extension is at least speaking from the NRM world, we still perceive, you know, w- water irrigation forest issues as male dominated as sectors. So I think that a lot of work needs to go into place into changing, you know, the notion of masculinity the notion of to what extent we can have men extensionists, which we do at the rural, uh, in rural development also engages this type of, of, of discussions. Um, yeah, so thank you.
0: Thanks, Liana. Can we move, uh, let me move to the last, I think we have time just for one more round of questions because there, there's a broad question I think you, all of you may want to speak to and then I want to have some time at the end for final remarks. But a question came in from Vicki Wild to all of you. Uh, it says, based on your review of what's missing, what would be your top recommendations for gender research, uh, by agriculture, climate, NRM going forward. And then a particular question also came in from Charlotte Hebebrand, which was directed to Vivian to ask for if there's some concrete examples of breeding innovations that advance or have the potential to advance equality and empowerment, which is kind of related to that. So um, maybe I'll just open the floor again if anybody wants to volunteer to go first and we'll take as many uh, respondents as as there are uh, interests in our remaining time for that.
7: I can start yep. it off. Um, sure. Yeah.
0: Thanks.
7: And and I think for for me the question is is not even the, uh, the what in terms of a specific area of, of research, but more the type of research that's needed. So as I have moved from being a researcher, um, you know, engaged on the ground or funding research to working with with governments and, and, um, you know, supporting them to prioritize their investments. A huge question remains in terms of what works at scale, at that national policy level scale to actually change gender equality and women's empowerment. And to the extent that this becomes a big researchable question and it might, actually also be related to how are we evaluating large development programs to actually inform what works and what doesn't work, because we still keep seeing very large investment programs, whether they're by governments, whether they're multilateral agencies, that actually have some of the perverse outcomes that, that the others um, were, were speaking about. So for me now, as I work with government, that remains a huge fundamental question. And so it's been very gratifying for me to see, um, you know, like the full site analysis really take up this and say, if we invest in particular sectors or particular subsectors, what's likely to be the impact on women's economic mobility or on women's economic empowerment, because those are questions that we need to answer in an environment of scarce resources where governments are allocating funds, um, limited funds to certain interventions, I think it's going to be a fundamental question to answer. And, and my expectation always is that the CGIR being the largest global public research organization and probably now having the most gender researchers per square, I don't know how we measure them, (laughs) that they become
0: part of answering this uh, question. Super, thanks, Jumaiwa. That really gets to the heart of the issue of scope that several presenters have mentioned before. Um, Anyone else would like to take a stab at that question?
3: Perhaps I can go Frank. Um... Sure, Vivian. Yeah, thanks. So just briefly to the question on what is, what are the main issues for research? Um, I think throughout the presentations we've seen a lot of uh, work on generating information, statistics, evidence, looking at what are the key topics, etc. Now I think moving forward, the key areas of research will be about institutional change and finding the right spots to plug that information to make real change. Right? So how do we as institutions, local, national, regional, uh, global, need to change to address the process systematically, consistently, and um, in a in a repetitive way, you know, uh, over time. So I think that's one of the, the key ones for research. And responding briefly to, to Charlotte, there are some excellent examples from the team working with Eva Weltsin. Um, on sorghum breeding, where they actually addressed uh, gender research and found that uh, women farmers could not benefit from the amazing varieties of sorghum that were being bred because their soils were too poor and that they, their conditions and they could not access inputs uh, fertilizer etc so they had to completely shift the way they addressed uh, research in sorghum to be able to fit in the poor soils that women could access and that that enhanced their um their capacity to produce their income etc so, so there could be many other examples such as that one uh, that we can take from but yeah,
0: thank yeah. You. thanks Vivian.
5: Mm-hmm. Can Cynthia? I jump in on oh, sure, Yeah. Cynthia. Thanks. I think these are excellent points, and I, I, wanted to pick up on what Vivian was saying about to, to, in, really institutional learning and improvement. And I, the piece I wanted to add, so is answering, um, responding to Vicky's question about the most important thing, I would say whatever the research topic, um, I think there's been a critical lack of quality M&E data about the outcomes of research for development in the, in the CGR and, and as well as in, in development more broadly. Some institutions have done a wonderful job of starting to close those gaps, but unless um, we can fight the tide of pushing to, to projectize and, and always look ahead to the next innovation and getting innovations out the door and having that I mean, the forward-looking lens is wonderful, but unless we're also looking back and really getting very accurate data about what were the impacts to date and having a long enough time scale with enough granularity and an intersectional lens and a really sharp gender lens, then we're just going to keep on innovating and pushing ahead and pushing ahead, but we're not going to we're not going to move to a next level, I think. And so that's that's what I would suggest is that quality, rigorous, very honest and sometimes painful M and E and then applying it.
0: Great. Thanks, Cynthia. Um, who have we not heard from on the last question yet? Um, Susan.
6: (laughs) Thank you, you, Frank. Um, So, you know, I, every time I get this question of what should we focus on and what should we drop, they always ask us every year at planning, to tell you the truth, we need to continue to do this research. Even with the traditional value chain analysis, the breeding, there's always new questions you can ask, especially when things are changing so much. The COVID pandemic really has changed what we are looking at again. And we are going back to look at value chains and shorter value chains or, you know, things that can be stored. So we we really cannot take for granted, just we cannot say this science is now done. My issue, my... Ish, my my, I think that what we need to do is continue to, to evolve each of these areas. I mean, now there's a flip question. As Jemima said, we have to change the methods in which we are collecting the data. So all these various topics I think are hugely important. And finally, I really agree with Cynthia, the data aspect. And as you do the research in these various thematic areas, getting the data, finding out what's working, what's not working um, and and also convincing the national statistics offices to collect the data as well. So it really has to continue and we are not yet there. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, yes, we still have to keep pushing, obviously, um, within and externally. Uh, Ileana, did you want to add anything to this? And then I'll go to Anuka and uh, Rihanna and maybe to say the final words.
4: <laughs> Thank you, Frank. No, I would say, you know, like as, as colleagues mentioned, you know, like there needs to focus on what needs to change to arrive at transformation. I mean, from whichever uh, topic, either agriculture or NRM, I think, you know, like that would highlight not only the focus on the new research questions, but what else? You know, in a from research, we talked about capacity building, working along with governments, you know, like enhancing uh, the ability to address these issues is also something that we need to keep in mind as we um, advance in this agenda. So thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Anuka? Yeah,
2: um, I want to, uh, I found this on my um I don't know if you can read it. Uh-huh. it yes. yes, and um, I went. I thought actually, um, I think we should sort of leverage the moment where we might be. So often, a lot of sectors they have a sort of a yes, but mechanism where they say yes, gender is important, but we can do it without feminist theories and without feminist actors and feminist researchers. So I thought maybe we can leverage the moment and go to yes, and and say yes, gender is important. And let's find new collaborations, new ways of working together between feminists, non-feminist researchers, scientists, and also using the wealth of knowledge and also the wealth of thinking and conceptualizations that is already out there, uh, but then bring it together. So my message is let's go for yes and.
0: Super. (laughs) Great. Thanks, Anuka. And Rhiannon?
1: Gosh, it's difficult to go after all those great uh, <laughs> contributions, but I think I would just echo the institutional change uh, point. I think that's really critical. And and Jemima's uh, point around the how. I think we did end uh, the introductory chapter with a couple of imperatives for moving forward. So whatever research we're doing, wherever we're going, uh, what came out from across the book was that we need to be embracing complexity, embracing feminist politics, not shying away from that, uh, engaging with thought leaders, uh, feminists, thought leaders in the South to keep fresh and up to date, you know, engaging with the decolonization discourse, engaging with with all of that great stuff that's happening. And then the second piece around catalyzing uh, methodological innovation and interdisciplinarity. So really taking a a big step, a bold step towards much more um, uh, comprehensive interdisciplinary Um, and intersectional research. So I think that would be my last uh, plug. (laughs)
0: Great, thanks, uh, Rhiannon, and thanks everyone. I think, yeah, what we're hearing is, I mean, gender equality obviously cuts across agriculture and many other sectors, we need to uh, you know, work as a, as a system, as a CGIR, I think, with other partners and uh, who are engaged in this in various capacities, either as research or advocates or development and so forth. So I think we've heard that message, that's clear. And um, I think the other thing is, I, what I wanted to also say is that I think also the CGIR, it's been recognized by people here already. We are, I think, a powerhouse in gender research, but you know, we it's a, it's still a yes and as Anuku was saying, and I think I, I I'm observing over time still improved and improved coordination uh, uh, and uh, an ability to really kind of mainstream gender because we as uh, the CRP programs yes we had gender strategies we actually invested a lot in gender research but I think now even as I see these new initiatives being developed there was much more engagement of the res- gender researchers with the initiative design teams there's a much more uh, you know appreciation now for the what what individual initiatives can do what strategic initiatives on gender can do what the platform on gender can do and I think we're positioning ourselves to become even a stronger and stronger voice on gender in the future so as everyone has said let's seize the opportunity and, and do it <laughs> so with that uh, thanks everyone and uh, and have a good day or rest of the, or, or evening wherever you are thank you